0: Good morning everyone our reading for this morning is from john chapter 3 verses 22 to 35 after this jesus and his disciples went into the judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing john also was baptizing at anon near salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for john had not yet been put in prison Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot bear me witness that I said. but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Today, friends... We will put a pause on our faithfulness in the city sermon series Um, this week. um, Pastor Duke has been out sick, and so today he's out as well. Um, But we have a guest preacher today, and Chuck Garriott is a longtime friend of our church, and he's an ordained minister in our denomination. Uh, He currently serves as executive director to uh, ministry uh, to the state, in which he's a founder of. And so this ministry ministers um, to governments here in, the government here in Washington DC, in our state capitals, and also uh, in our international capitals around the world. Chuck lives in Adams Morgan uh, with his wife, Debbie. Some of you guys know Debbie, uh, co-leader of our, one of our moms groups. Uh, and each week, Chuck and Debbie have had the privilege of hosting our Adams Morgan uh, neighborhood group in their home for many, many, many years. And so the Lord has used them greatly in the life of our church, in the life of our city, and now around the world. Uh, So Chuck, it's our pleasure to have you here today to open up God's word uh, to us and and to bless us through it. Just show him some love.
2: Thank you, Yancy, and it's good to be here. Uh, And I'm very sorry that Duke is not feeling well and uh, ended up with COVID and apparently Paula as well. So why don't we pray before we go any further? Father in heaven, thank you for giving us this morning to come and to worship you. Uh, We do pray for Duke and Paula for their recovery and that their children would be protected uh, from the virus. Uh, Thank you for speaking to us through your word. Uh, Thank you for the word that has already been read and our time in worship. Uh, We pray that now as we look into your word, as we spend time uh, trying to better understand it, how it applies to our lives, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be at work. Uh, Protect us, uh, protect us from Satan's schemes, protect me from saying things that would not uh, add or help, help us better understand what it is that you're saying to us. And we pray that in all these things that you would be honored and glorified. In Christ's name, amen. I suspect that most here are familiar with John the Baptist. You don't need anyone to explain to you who this person is. Uh, The fact that he's called John the Baptist doesn't mean he wouldn't have been a Presbyterian. I want you to know that. (laughs) Or maybe a a Methodist, I'm not sure. But uh, you know of him. You, You know of his story. You probably, first of all, might think of his parents, Zachariah and Elizabeth, who were very elderly. Uh, probably much older than even I am, and uh, yet they were able to have John the Baptist and it was an incredible miracle and blessing to them. You perhaps think about John the Baptist in terms of uh, his upbringing and what it was like for him to live in that part of the world under those circumstances. You may think about John the Baptist when it comes to his clothing, right? Uh, The way he dressed was a little bit odd. It wasn't the most fashionable uh, uh, well, in other words, no one else was really following his clothing and his apparel uh, choice. You might uh, think about his diet, right? The fact that he uh, had a fairly strict diet of locusts and honey, and that makes sense to me. When, I, when you read that, you think to yourself, if you have to eat locusts, you definitely want some honey to get it down, right? I mean, it's just one of those things that you're, you're going contempl- to be contemplating. Uh, you might think of the character of his ministry, where he's out in the wilderness and he's preaching. I'm not sure what the, uh, what the parallel would be for us here today, maybe, I don't know, uh, in some mountains or someplace else, but he's not preaching in an urban setting. He, people are going out to him, and, uh, and they're going out to him in fairly large numbers. He's got a very, very popular ministry. He also uh, became a bit political, began to speak out against some of the rulers of his day, and that got him into some significant trouble. And you would remember the fact that he was in prison. And it didn't go well for him because eventually uh, Herodias had the opportunity to influence his circumstances, and she asked for his head, and he was executed. So it's a rather sad story in some ways in regards to John's life. And when you think about, when you think about his witness in regards to not only his particular time and place, but also in terms of all of history, that 2,000 years later, we're still talking about John the Baptist. And one of the things that amazes me about the scriptures is that it's not written in a theological way or as a textbook, But the scriptures, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, often bring us to people who lived in real places and real time. And so today, 2,000 years later, we can somewhat relate to John and his circumstances and the things that were going on within his own life. And here in this particular passage, we find him at a certain period, a certain point in, in redemptive history where where he has to explain to his disciples those who have been under him, who have been under his teaching, under his influence, who have seen the way in which he lives. He has to explain to them really who he is in a a little bit different light, how he thinks, how he thinks about the past and the present and even the future. And in doing so, in this particular passage, we have what I'm going to call this morning a portrait of humility. There's no... That word, that term in this passage does not exist. But I think you will agree with me that as you look at the passage, as you look at what he says here, it is clearly a portrait of humility. The scriptures accent this dynamic, this mindset, this, this presence of humility both in Old and New Testament, right? As you, as you think about, like as you've been studying Moses there in Exodus, uh, certainly he was someone who was considered to be quite humble. As you go through other portions of the, new, of the Old Testament, for example, and you come to the book of Isaiah, you're reminded of the suffering servant, that as the Old Testament is portraying the coming of Christ, it portrays Christ often as that suffering servant. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And there in that passage in Isaiah, we're told of of the humility of God, which is really an interesting dynamic when you think about the fact that God doesn't need to ever become humble, but because of his love for you, because of his concern for you, for me, He often presents himself in that picture and so it doesn't surprise us when we come to this particular portion of John the Gospel of John that the that the focus on John the Baptist is really that of humility by the way when was the last time as you thought about going to a church you didn't think about maybe the preaching so much or the worship or the music or whether or not they had pews or they they didn't have pews or the architecture, whatever it may be. When the last time you thought about going to a church, you said to yourself, I want to go to a church where I'm going to learn and study about humility, where where I'm in the presence of these people, I just get a sense of humility. And humility is not something where we just kind of think about it all the time, but it clearly is part of what it means to embrace the gospel where we recognize our sin and there is a there is a there is this this uh sense of of need of repentance in our lives and in the process we realize that before God before this holy God who has loved us so much that he sent his only son to die for us that that as we come to him we come to him in humility so as we look at this passage here in John just for a little bit this morning, I want you to look at three different dynamics or aspects of this portrait of humility. Uh, The first is going to be what I'm going to term as the title, ownership. The second uh, will be the definition of life, and the third will be uh, celebration. So let's just look at those three quickly, if we may. In verse 27, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. Now, to be honest with you, having been in ministry uh, since 1979, so that's after the Civil War, by the way. And so I know you're thinking, oh, this guy's really old. Like, uh, I wonder if he needs help getting down the stairs here. I, so I've been, in the, I've been in the ministry long enough to know different dynamics of, of what it looks like to be in the pastorate and. And uh, what it looks like to be in the kind of ministry I am now, and I'm going to tell you up front that there is a tendency, whether you like it or not, to own the ministry. Right? As a as a pastor, as someone who's who's involved in in ministering to people, there is a tendency to really own the ministry and to think that it is my ministry. And it's not unusual for us as pastors to refer to the church as that's my church. Right, And you don't really mean that you own the church, but there is a little bit of that, you know? And you get up in the morning and you go about things and, and you're working with the, the dynamics of the ministry and all the different particulars and little increments at a time, you begin to own the ministry. And if you recall, as this passage was read, there comes to a point where you're asking yourself, Were the disciples of John thinking competitively, right, in regards to what was taking place at that point in time? That is, look, he says, you know, the guy guy that you've been around, this Jesus, it looks like to me that he's gaining more people than than we are. And by the way, I kind of thought we own this territory. I thought the people were coming to listen to you and we were working, we've been working really hard to bring in the people to come to you and to take care of their needs, et cetera. And Now all of a sudden it looks like things are kind of moving over in this direction. And John immediately picks up the question of, well, who actually owns the ministry? Who does it belong to? And what does he say? He says, well, it doesn't belong to me. It comes from heaven, guys. This is not our ministry. It was never to be our ministry. It belongs to heaven. And when I, think, when I think about what John says there, he is echoing what I hear from the lips of King David back in First Chronicles chapter 29. And in First Chronicles 29, if you look at that, in verse 10, this is David before the, the people and the leadership of Israel It is very much that last season of his life before he dies, and the kingdom is handed over to his son Solomon. And he wants to prepare things so that when he dies, there will be the resources to build the temple that he could not build. That God said, You will not be the one to build the temple, but your son Solomon will. And so he makes sure that there's all the resources there and so now he's coming before the people and all the things have been given the gold and the silver and all the precious things and and it's an enormous amount of wealth that has been collected to build this temple but this is what he says in verse 10 of chapter 29 of first chronicles and therefore david blessed the lord in the presence of all the assembly And David said, blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Now, those words may sound incredibly familiar to you, nothing new there. But it would have been very easy for David to have said to the people, hey, look what we have done. Look at us. Look at me. No, I can't build a temple, but look, at, look what I've done. Look at my work. And we live in a world that is very oriented towards that. And to some degree, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong if, if you gained really great grades and you were celebrated for that. Nothing wrong with that, or or you've accomplished other things within your career. Nothing wrong with, with you being recognized for that, but there is a significant difference from having such recognition and giving it to God and saying, Lord, all this belongs to you, as opposed to, yeah, look at me. And even within ministry, I'm afraid to say, it's quite easy for us to gain all the glory and John says I'll have nothing to do with that what I have is from heaven and it does not belong to me I think about a a company this is gonna sound a little bit odd Uh, a number of years ago Debbie and I were visiting Anna in New Delhi Uh, Anna was Uh, working there in the slums of New Delhi and we had gone with her this one particular day and she was in some meetings and we were hanging out waiting for her to be finished. The next thing I know this guy who clearly was not uh, uh, from India uh, comes out of this room and he introduces himself to me and his name is Sean and he says I work for Barnhart Crane Company. (laughs) And uh, he had this you know, uh, Memphis, Tennessee accent, and it was just kind of a weird combination of being in India and then, and then speaking with this guy, and then he began to explain to me, like, what he does, and he represented this company, and he went on and told me a little bit more about it. Eventually, I did a little research to find out about who Barnhart Crane Company was, and what I discovered was that the two owners, uh, Eric and Alan, I believe is their names, had decided that God was calling them to the mission field. And he was calling them to go to Saudi Arabia to preach the gospel there. When I heard that, I thought, that is one of the most difficult places for any missionary to go to. You could be arrested for just having a Bible, much less preaching the gospel there. But on their way, before they left, their father came to them and said, "Uh, sons, I'm about to retire, and this family business, this Barnhart Crane Company, uh, if you don't take it over, then I'm not sure what will happen to it, and I'm asking you not to go to the mission field, but instead take over the company and run it. I don't know all the details of the conversation, but what I do know is that they considered it, and they they felt like, that it was appropriate for them not to go to the mission field, but instead to run this crane company. I suspect that it was a crane company that maybe brought in a few hundred thousand dollars or so a year, maybe even a million. I think that might be an exaggeration. It wasn't like a large crane company. But Alan says to himself, this could be poison for me spiritually I'm I'm paraphrasing and so he sat down he goes through the scriptures he's concerned that his life is going to be so consumed by his career this this career path that he's decided to do for the sake of his family because he loved his father and so he goes through the scriptures and he's reading all the passages that talk about just the danger of money and wealth and worldly things and he says lord i don't want to i don't want to be that way i don't want to fall into that and if this if this company really takes off i want to make sure that we're not just sort of grabbing all the gusto that we can and so he makes this commitment to god and so in the first year of the business that he and his brother take over they were able to give to missions fifty thousand dollars now, that may not sound like an enormous amount of money to you, but proportionally, back in the 80s for this little company, that proportionally, that was a lot of money. In the second year, they gave $150,000 to missions. And every year after that, it got to be more and more until it got to the point where the company, in time, became a company worth about 2 to $250 million. And every month, they gave away a million dollars a month. Bang, bang, bang. And within a short period of time, they would given over a hundred million dollars to missions. He said before the Lord, I want to make sure that I understand that what we have does not belong to us. It belongs to you. And I want to give you, Lord, what is yours and not act like it's mine. I don't know if I would... Be able to have done the same I, I, I wonder like those kinds of numbers in those particulars maybe it could be overwhelming what about you when you think about who you who you are your life your career your education where you are within your career where you are in terms of your family relationships do you say to yourself these things belong to me or do you say no I know all of this, all of life, just as David said, belongs to God. And I am a steward of those things. That to me is one of the significant parts of this portrait of humility that John gives to us here in the Gospel of John. Secondly, is the issue of definition. How is your life defined? I believe that John understood his, definite, his, his life definition. In verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ but I have been sent before him. As I mentioned to you before, it's really easy for us as uh, those in ministry as well as in other areas to, to, to somehow allow the circumstances around us and our accomplishments and all those things to find who we are. And we really do have a tendency, because we're taught this in a lot of ways, to want to become more, right? I mean, what business out there would be, called, would, would be considered successful if it becomes less, right? Who out there, in your, if you're a writer or if you're a teacher or if you're you know, in some type of consulting or whatever it may be, like if your, if your influence shrinks, so to speak, No one's going to think that you're really doing a very good job, right? You might even lose your job. You've got to be expanding. it has got to be more. But John understood that it needed to be less. And it's interesting if you look at uh, what the scriptures say and describe about John, that here is a guy who really understood how God had defined his life. If you look at Isaiah chapter 40, it's that... We call it the pivotal passage there in, in the book. In chapter 40, it, begun, it begins with the words, comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Now, before we go any further, I want you to go back with me again, maybe 2,000 years with John. You've got Zachariah, you've got Elizabeth, his mom, his dad. His dad's in the ministry, uh, probably his mom. You know, she's, she's doing all kinds of things for the ministry. And they're sitting around, I'm going to say the dinner table. And I suspect, again, this is a little bit speculative, that at the dinner table, as a family, they would have family devotions. Zechariah would read from a passage of the Old Testament. It might be a psalm. It might be uh, something from, uh, from the book of Exodus. Who knows? But eventually, I believe that in their family devotions, Zechariah would have come to Isaiah chapter 40. And he would have begun to, to have read, comfort, comfort, my people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And then in verse three, and before he, and just as he gets into verse three, again, this is a little speculative, but he cracks, he cracks he can't go further. He begins to choke up. Maybe he begins to weep, but he reads it. He's able to somehow read the passage. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight the desert, a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level And the rough places are plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And as he is crying and weeping and tears are are pouring down his cheek. and And Elizabeth is probably doing the same. Because they've thought about all the things that have happened in their lives. And how special it is to have John. And then Zachariah says to his son, my son my son, this is you. What Isaiah has said many, many, many years ago, this is you, my son. The scriptures well define John's life. He is the one who would come out in the wilderness and he would be constantly pointing to Christ And as he says in this passage here in the Gospel of John, I must become less, you must become more. That, my friends, is the definition, is part of the definition of humility where you realize that your life is defined not by your career, not by your wealth, not by your accomplishments, not by all the things that you have gained over the course of time, but by the Scriptures, by the Gospel. And that's a really different mindset and again it doesn't mean that you don't accomplish things and you're not successful and you don't try to do more within your life and career etc it doesn't mean that the desires that you have are wrong or somehow evil no it just means that proportionately you realize that those are not the things that define your life and John understood that and so he says to his disciples I must become less, and Jesus must become more. I must become less, and Jesus must become more. And then thirdly, thirdly, we have the issue of celebration. Now sometimes when I'm working on a sermon, there's a certain part of it that I like more than other parts. I'll just be honest with you, right? (laughs) And this part now is the one, this is the section that I really like in regards to what John, the Gospel of John, gives to us in regards to teaching us about John the Baptist. One of the privileges that you have, I have, have had in ministry, is to engage with a couple in their Uh, pursuit of marriage, both in terms of premarital counseling and then the weddings. Uh, I was at an event last night with a friend who finished 30, almost 40 years of ministry and and, uh, there was a large gathering of his church and I think he mentioned last night that he had done like 80 weddings and it made me wonder, well how many have I done over the last 40 some years and I'm not really sure, I haven't counted, but I've done a lot and if I haven't done 80, maybe close to 80 and so I, uh, I, I was thinking about different weddings and like some of the, oh, just how, how different they are. And they're all beautiful, right? And sometimes the weddings are very, very simple and, and uh, it's just going to be a simple wedding with a few people and a small little reception and that will be it. Uh, and then you have the kind of wedding that uh, I was involved in, Debbie and I were involved in back in October. Some of you may know, I don't think this is, Uh, I don't think I'm speaking at turn when I, if I give the name of this one couple because they live here in the community. Uh, Jesse and Ruth Burns is their name and uh, I've known Jesse for some years. I think the, uh, they do go to uh, uh, Meridian or uh, Grace downtown and uh, they had asked if I would be involved in uh, their premarital counseling. Debbie and I did that and then we did their wedding uh, in Chicago. it it was a Romanian wedding and I had never been involved in a Romanian wedding before and it was it was truly a picture of celebration and I'll just give you some of the highlights it was a two-hour wedding I've never been involved in a two-hour wedding, and it was not because my preaching was long (laughs) I'm just gonna tell you up front in fact in fact they had two other people who preached in the wedding, right? They had two preachers, and I was not one of them. They had, they at, at one point in the ceremony, this two-hour ceremony, the father gets up, and he goes over to the side, and it's a huge church, and they have a 40-piece brass band that, that played like these medallies that went on for 15 and 20 minutes. And then they had another group of singers who came and they sang, and, and I mean, the thing went on and on. And I've never been to a wedding where up front, there is a a sofa. And the the couple is sitting on the sofa while all these things are going on, right? It's just a very, very different culture. And so finally, finally, at this one point in the ceremony, the groom stands up, Jesse stands up, and I did not know this about him. And he goes to the mic, and now his wife is sitting over here and, or his wife-to-be. Is sitting over there and he says I he says my my um, my wife-to-be knows that I'm somewhat musical but she's never heard me play and he picks up a violin and then before this group this this is a large large sanctuary he plays this beautiful piece For his wife to be. It was just an amazing wedding that was then followed by a sit-down reception uh, like for 600 people. It just went on and on and on and on. It was just this beautiful picture of celebration, right? This one guy, this one gal who committed themselves before the Lord and they wanted to celebrate what was going on. And so when John is thinking about how to to help his disciples understand what it means for him to really love Christ he says this in verse 28 you yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ but I have been sent before him the one who has the bride notice he wants them to have a picture of a wedding the one who has the bride is the bridegroom but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him? What does he do? Does he complain? Oh, I wish I was the bridegroom. I wish I was the one marrying her. I wish I was getting all the attention. I wish that that everybody's at the wedding is looking at me. They're so enamored with me and all that I've done. No, that person rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice, and therefore this joy. Is of mine is now complete he must increase but I must decrease right he wants the focus to be on the celebration that's taking place in redemptive history that Christ has come to save his bride to love her greatly and you're part of that picture if you've placed your faith and trust in Christ alone you're that bride You're the the one who Christ has come for. And my prayer is that if for some reason, as you sit here today, you say to yourself, I've heard these things, they're somewhat familiar, but I know it doesn't apply to me. My prayer is that it would apply to you. And this portrait of humility, this portrait of humility would be, in a sense, seared into your thinking so that as you go through life, as you think about your workday tomorrow and the following weeks, as you think about your relationships, your marriage, your desire for marriage, for family, your present family, or your desire for family, whatever it may be, that you would say to yourself, Lord, all these things belong to you, not me. You're the one who defines my life in the gospel. And it is my desire to live a life that is going to celebrate all that you are, all that you've given me. Not for my glory, but for Christ's glory. May the Lord bless us as he enables us by his spirit to have an understanding of this portrait of humility and to apply it to our lives. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us this morning for this time of worship. Again, we ask God that you would work within our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.